Caroline, um, we're glad that you're here. If this is your first time here, if you're a guest with us, if someone has invited you or if you've come on your own, um, I hope I'm not the first. I hope other people have welcomed you, but um, I just want to say welcome. We're thankful to have you. We know that we partner with some incredible churches in our community, and there's a lot of people looking for some good churches, and they have a tough job because uh, we have some good ones here. We partner with some great ones. But if you want to get connected here at Timberline, we'd love to help you do that. And the best way for us to connect you is the connection card right in front of you. You'll find that. And if you can just fill some information, information out for us. We won't come to your house or bug you or anything like that. We just want to just send you a letter, welcome you, tell you a little bit about Timberline. But also if you turn it over on the back, you can find different ministry opportunities for you to check. And then later on in the worship service, you can just drop that off in the offering plate when it comes by. All right. Well, hey, I want to give you some information. I want to let you know some things that have happened this week. Uh, this week, we had two mission teams go out, one to Mexico and one to India. And um, I am happy to tell you that everyone that went on those trips actually came back. And so that's always a good thing on mission trips. But beyond that, um, we as a church were able to really make a difference in our world and two different trips going out. And so I just want you to know that, that sometimes we, we don't we don't know all the things that are going on that God is using people in this in this congregation to do, but um, there's some great things happening. You'll hear all about it. Pastor Derry and Bonnie went to India, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that. But one of the things that I am so thankful for about this church is it is a great commission church to really be, be committed to going out and spreading the love of Christ all over the world. One way that we're highlighting that here this weekend is our our. Christmas missions market. And if you take a look at your bulletin, if you take it, if you take out, there's a little insert here, this little green insert, that'll tell you all the organizations, all the nonprofits and all the ministries that we partner with as a church. And they are here for Christmas to give you an opportunity to purchase alternative Christmas gifts uh, for the Christmas season. So if you're interested in any of these organizations, want to find out more about them, head on out to the mall area, fill this green sheet out. And there's a table out there that's kind of the main table for the Christ for the Christmas missions market and uh, they'll get you the information. But one of the other things that um, I want to tell you about and talk to you about is uh, Timberline Windsor. And for the next few weeks, you're going to hear myself and Pastor Derry talk a lot about Timberline Windsor because we're almost there. We are almost ready to launch this new church and we're really excited about it. And it's really interesting because a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go speak at a college down in Texas and it was an outreach event and they invited me to come share. And I was meeting with this campus um, uh, ministry leadership team and I asked them two questions. These are two questions that people have asked me over the years. But the first question is, what's the most important thing that you you've ever done in your life. And, and without a doubt, all of them said, made a commitment to follow Jesus. And the next question was, well, what's the most significant thing that you can do in the life of somebody else? And they all said, well, we, we want to be able to introduce others into this relationship with Jesus. And I think about that for our individual lives. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that believes that and really wants to live that out. Because you heard us, uh, you know, months ago, we came and told you about Timberline Windsor and what was what it was about. And we as a church voted and decided to go after this facility in Windsor and to plant plant this local church in that in that community. What I want to do is I want to give you the highlights of the last four months, because there's been a lot that's happened over the last four months. In August, we started we started construction in this building that we had the opportunity to purchase. And to this day, construction is still happening and we're looking forward to, to 
to opening that venue. In September, we were invited as a church to do an outdoor service during the Windsor Harvest Festival on Labor Day weekend. And so we gathered on Sunday morning of Labor Day weekend, and we had an outdoor service, and over 400 people came to that outdoor service. We had a great celebration. In October, we launched three weeks of what we called our Go Team meetings, and that was kind of our vision casting, letting people know that we're interested in finding out about Timberline Windsor, what this church was going to be about. And what we communicated is that this church isn't necessarily a church to make it more convenient for Timberliners who live in Windsor to go to church, but yet we wanted to resource them with a building and a facility in a local church to reach their neighbors. And then last week, here in November, we actually launched our very first preview service. And on Sundays at 11.30, those that live in Windsor, and they're going to be a part of the Windsor community, are meeting. Our services have already started at 11.30 in the South Auditorium. And so those are the exciting things that have happened. And I'm just so happy to be a campus pastor for a church that is being sent from a church like Timberline here in Fort Collins. And I know many of you have asked, some of you were around in the spring and wanted to be a part of the, the going campaign, but just really couldn't do it for one reason or another. Maybe finances weren't allowing you to do it, or maybe you weren't here around the spring. But for the next few weeks, Pastor Derry and I will be coming and we'll be talking a little bit more about this going campaign. And so if you want, you can take out this going faith promise card. And if you take that out, it's in the chair back in front of you as well. And you will find at the bottom, there's some prayer points. And I would really ask if you would please commit to praying for us as a church community launching in Windsor this year, if you would just pray over over that, and then also, if you want to join us and be a part of this, uh, be a part of this movement in Windsor, you can join us prayerfully, but also financially by making a two-year faith promise. And so you'll be hearing again, myself and Pastor Derry talk about this over the next few weeks. But it's exciting because we're looking forward to our first service here in a few weeks in Windsor, Colorado. Thanks so much, Church. And now my my good friend Brent Cunningham, who is by far the best dressed and smartest pastor I've ever met. Wow. He's Pastor Rez is not normally that nice to me behind closed doors, so that's just for show. He says that stuff. Well, good morning. How are you? Um, I'm Brent Cunningham. I'm our pastor of uh, Love Teaches and Discipleship here. Uh, most of the time, I'm, uh, my, my teaching activity takes place on Wednesday nights with uh, Pastor Rob and Pastor uh, Dick Foth. But um, I get to be with you this week as we're starting our ninth week uh, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if, if you've been with us, you know that we're going through this Old Testament book written by one of the most famous uh, ancient kings of Israel, this fellow named Solomon, who, who was known for many things, uh, maybe most of all for, for his wisdom. And uh, we've entitled this series, The Facts of Life. How many of you remember the old TV show, right? Remember the song from that? Uh, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have... Am I the only one who remembers this? Okay. <laughs> The facts of life. Okay. Well, I thought maybe I imagined the, the show or something. But this is, this is kind of uh, sums up Solomon's approach to this book. He says he looks back over his life. He surveys it, and he says he's taking the good. He's taking the bad. He's, he's looking at it all, and he's, he, he's invested himself in everything. He's, he's gone down these avenues uh, of, of, of everything at his, at his expense. And um, he's, you know, he's, he's attempted financial stockpiling. He's gone down the road of physical pleasures. He's gone down the path of creative pursuits, of, of academic achievement. And it's like he's drunk it dry, every single one. And he, he reaches the end, and he just, he's, he's exhausted them all. 
And as Pastor Derry said in week one, he, he reaches this conclusion that, that everything that happens, and here's his catchphrase, under the sun, which is kind of like a, a shorthand way of saying um, in a sort of a secular mindset, a sort of God-absent mindset. He said, all these pursuits, all these good things under the sun, when they're that way, you, you reach the end and it's just kind of meaningless. It's like it's empty. And so in chapter 9, he continues some of those thoughts, but he gets to something unique. He gets to a point where he says, but there's something to be enjoyed. We're given these gifts. There are these good things in life. And he says, he gives this call to, to embrace, to enjoy life. So read with me, if you would, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 if you have your Bibles. Or uh, if you don't, you can follow along on the screen. Solomon writes, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do, well, they're in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. Ecclesiastes has been considered by the Jews always as to be within this genre of literature of what they called wisdom literature, right? Some people have uh, defined wisdom literature as like the distilled experience of those who have lived life well. Well, my initial thought when I, when I think about this is why in the world would you put this book where Solomon is just constantly saying, I tried this and it was a dead end, I tried this and it was a dead end, I tried that and it was a dead end, I messed up here, I blew it there. Why would you put the musings of a guy like that into something called wisdom literature? And I think the answer lies in what the, the first couple words that we read from verse 1. Remember he says in verse 1, so I reflected on all this. See, I think, I think the primary difference between a fool and a wise person, because they could have both had similar experiences in life. But I think the primary difference between a fool and a wise person is that the wise person asks questions about the decisions they just made, about the circumstance they just found themselves in, about the events that just happened. And they go like, what, what was the meaning of that? Like, how did that come about? What, what was going on there? And that's the first, if you're following along in the bulletin, the first fill in the blank is, and it's a question for us, do you ask meaning-finding questions of yourself. I have a, uh, a friend, Mark, who is on the Larimer County Sheriff's Department, and as a piece of that, he works on their, their SWAT team. Now, the SWAT team is, you know, these group of guys who are, you know, highly trained. Um, they, you know, they uh, execute high-risk search warrants looking for guns and drugs and, like, armed and dangerous criminals. And, you know, when they find these guys, you know, they break into wherever they're barricaded and, you know, held up with, you know, they're throwing flashbangs in the window and, you know, guns drawn. You know, stuff that we do on boring days. You know, that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, obviously there's an enormous amount of training that goes into this sort of thing. And, and I, was, I was just talking to him this last week, and I said, like, you know, tell me a little bit about, like, what you do. Like, what's the most important thing that you guys do as a team? And he said, the most important thing we do as a team is not the, the training before and all that stuff. It's, it's what we do right afterwards. I said, is it more training? He goes, no, no, no. It's a debrief. What we do is we meet as a team, we sit down in a room, and we ask these, like, brutally honest questions of each other. It's like, hey, when we entered, now, why did you do this? Why did you go over there? Why did you, you know, button hook versus a high-low crisscross and, you know, go over there and, and do this stuff? 
because they're wanting to know from every member of the team what went into your decision-making process. Because they, they want to figure out, did we have the right people, the right training, the right tools, because they understand there's going to be a next time. And they get the fact that their success the next time, their ability to make wise decisions the next time is entirely dependent upon how well they look back and they figure out the meaning of what just happened. Okay, that last mission we are on, like, what, what happened there? What did we do well? What did we not do well? Where are we going from here? These meaning-finding questions. This is why I think, at least partially, why the ancient Hebrews looked at this book, looked at Solomon, and they said, he bears the marks of wisdom. He's asking these meaning-finding questions because he doesn't just stop at confession. I blew it. <laughs> he says, I blew it, but like, what was going on in my mindset when that happened? when that was all going on. Let me give you three words. This isn't in your outline, but if you're taking notes, write these down. This is a way for us, I think, to do this with our own decisions. First word is people. The second word is ideas. And the third word is circumstances. If you want to do this, if you want to be on this path of being a wise person, these are the three primary areas that shape you and me. People, ideas, and circumstances. And as you ask those questions, who are the people that were influencing me, like, you know, when that went on? What were the ideas that were guiding me? And then what were the circumstances that, that really changed and shaped who I am? So this is the beginning of the path to wisdom, and ultimately the beginning of the path to, to embracing life, to, to living life out loud. Read with me, if you would, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. This is where he gets to this, enjoy life, embrace it. And I think he tells us a little bit of how here. Verse 7, he says, Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you. There's that phrase, under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. The second fill in the blank there is a question. How do you respond to the good things in your life? In verse 7, we get to a bit of a reprieve from, from Solomon's kind of journaling about all the dead ends that he's tried. And he gives this, it's more than advice, it's like a command to, to embrace life. He says, go, do these things. It's a, it's a call. Um, and look at the things he lists. He says, you know, food, drink, clothing, oils for your body, marriage, vocation, creativity. All these things, he says, these are given by God. And this like goes back to Genesis. God created these things, gave them for your enjoyment, for my enjoyment. And he says, don't throw them on the scrap heap. You know, do you realize that every day of creation, God had this common phrase. Do you remember what that was if you've read the book of Genesis, the first couple chapters? After each day, do you remember what he said? Yeah, he goes, that's good. And do you realize that that's not a detached clinical evaluation of things? Do you realize he's saying, I love that. Oh, I'm glad I did that. I delight in that. And you know what? Even though things, stuff in our world are marked by sin, he still delights in those things. He still thinks those things are fantastic. 
They were his idea from the start. God loves stuff. God made stuff. It was stuff was his idea from the beginning. So Solomon is saying, don't throw stuff, all this stuff, on the scrap heap of life. But now he's also saying, all throughout the book, if you've been here the past eight weeks or so, you've also heard him say that he's tried these, all this stuff. He's tried each one of these things, and like he's poured his heart into it. And he, he, he's taken good things, and he's made them ultimate things, right? And none of them could support the weight of his soul. He drank up each one, like hoping it would just satisfy him. But it's like each time he did, he almost found like he was drinking salt water. It just made his thirst that much more insatiable. And each time he found himself broken, you know, like, man, it didn't fulfill me. It didn't work. So here's the question I want to pursue this morning. How do we enjoy things, good things, without going to two extremes? Either making them an idol, a god, making a good thing an ultimate thing, or becoming hardened and just giving up on the whole process and saying, you know, I'm done with this stuff. I'm tired of it. I'm not going to pursue it anymore. Um, my first car, when I turned 16, was a 1978 uh, four-door Mercury Zephyr, vinyl seats. It was kind of, the color was in between like peach and puke. It was just <laughs> awful. It was an, I, I did not love this car. Okay, at all. But my grandmother gave it to me. It was very sweet of her. But it was horrible. I hated this car. My second car was the first car I loved. Okay? This, this is my second car. I think we have a picture over here. I loved this car. Okay? How, how many of you are thinking right now, I bet that guy was not prom king? And don't, <laughs> don't raise your hand, but I know. Um, th this was a 1986 Honda CRX blue hatchback two-door, stick shift, red pinstripe. This baby was awesome. I mean, I, I loved this car deeply, right? Now, this car eventually broke down, right? Sometimes I wonder, you know, where is my little blue car? Well, I don't. It's in a scrap heap somewhere. I'm not sure where it is. But we all have desires. We have, like, longings attached to things, to stuff in our life. And this, this, this tendency starts at a very young age. I remember when... Um, uh, this is about three or four years ago. My, my wife and I have four little kids um, from eight down to three. And our second, uh, a little girl, her name is Brielle, um, we've always prayed for our kids, prayed for the, the spouse that they would marry in the future someday. And they've heard us you know, doing this before too. And, and so they used to, more so when they were little, but they would talk, you know, they're, they're like blown away by the idea that they would marry someone and that seems so far off and weird. And so they used to talk about it with each other. And, you know, they'd say, so, so you know, can I marry Gabe? And we said, no, 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 Gabe's your cousin, you can't marry Gabe. Okay, well, and so, and so they'd talk about it. Well, one time they were in the back seat of the car of our van and we were driving down the road and Brielle, she was three at the time. And so she was talking to Keaton, her brother, who's, who was four. And, she, and so she was saying, this is the man I'm gonna marry. He's got a, you know, he, he has to love God. And, and, and he has to really like me. And, and, and she thought for a minute, she said, and he has to have a dry diaper. And, you know, now, you know, again, when you're three, a dry diaper is a pretty big deal. I mean, that's, that's a good quality you know, to possess. Um, but we, we, have, we have dreams, we have desires, we have longings, that are, that are attached to things in the future. But at some point, and we've all realized this, we're let down a little bit, you know what I mean? Like the dream we had about what that perfect job or that perfect relationship or that, you know, whatever, the dream always seems just like 
a little bit beyond the reality, just, just a little bit past it. That, that sort of thing we were searching for in it of fulfillment is just like one, just one step further. It always seems to be a little bit further out there. So what do we do in light of that? Because Solomon's like totally aware of this. He gets it. How do we live life with this reality? I want to give you three primary ways, and this is in your outline, that we respond or can respond when uh, the job, the house, the traveling, the romance um, hasn't met that goal, that desire that, that we originally had. C.S. Lewis talks about these things in his book, Mere Christianity. He's got this great chapter on hope, which is one of the best chapters in the book if you want to read more on it. Um, here are the three th ways that we can respond. Number one, we can blame the thing itself. You know, I just, I just haven't found the right one. Uh, it was the wrong vacation. It was the wrong spouse. And so what I do is my, I become the addict because, see, I just need the next one. I need a better one. And Solomon tried this. And so my thinking goes like this. If I tried a different person, if I had more expensive clothes, if I had that job, if I only had that promotion or that raise, I would finally catch that mysterious something that I've always been grasping for in every good thing that I've ever grasped. And this approach to, to good things sends me on this like ongoing search for novelty, the next thing, the new thing, the bigger thing. And if I just had that, I would finally feel like fulfilled, good, finally, finally set. If you were here, past, uh, if you were here the first week, chapter one, Pastor Derry read this verse, which, which grabs this idea. Verse eight of chapter one, uh, Solomon writes, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. He's talking about the human condition. It's like this, this bottomless pit of searching. So Solomon's saying, it's not once I have recognition or reputation or success, then I'll be happy, then I'll be good, then I'll be fulfilled. Um, a few years back in uh, Vanity Fair magazine, uh, an, an interview appeared with the, the pop legend music icon Madonna, and she talked about this issue in, in a brutally honest way. Listen to her words. She said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again. And again, my drive in life, she says, is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's what's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I'm somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. And she ends with these words, my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. This is the addiction model. Because see, for her, and for us it's other things, for her, Achievement or success, gaining that next step, it's, it's like a drug. It gives her the fill, but it eventually wears off, and she needs another dose of it. And when we play the role of the addict and we blame the thing, well, it was just the wrong one. I need to find a better one. Our driving force in life is fear. Because, see, I have to control those things. Instead of the driving force of my life being joy, because see, here's the danger. If I take a good thing, 
Let's say for me being a dad, that's a great thing. It's a gift from God. But if I take a good thing and I make it an ultimate thing and like I build my life around it, like my identity is centered in that thing, my life will go along just fine and be great so long as my kids all behave appropriately, so long as they're a certain way, right? But see, if, if they rebel, if, they're, if they go off the deep end, if they push back, if I lose relationship with them, uh, I've lost everything. I've lost my whole life. I've lost my identity because it's rooted and centered in them. And so I live out of this fear of controlling those things. And Solomon said, I've tried this. And thinking that it would satisfy, but again, it only made him thirstier, okay? So our response to being let down, we can, we can blame the thing and we can become the addict. Another option, letter B, is we can blame the world. Um, it's, it's sort of all a fraud. I give up on it. The world promised to fulfill me, but it, it doesn't. So I become the cynic in this case. I just, I kind of give up on desire altogether. Um, I get dumped by the person I love. Well, curses on the whole opposite sex. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I become this hardened, cynical person. And I stop believing in fulfillment. I stop even hoping for good things because I'm, I'm jaded. They won't work. I've tried it before. And so the cynic says, that's chasing the rainbow. Um, you know, that's chasing the mood. I've been disappointed. And so I just, I harden myself like a piece of cement, right? Because see, I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to be disappointed again. I've been hurt one too many times and it's not going to happen. So I become this hardened piece of cement. I love this statement by John Ortberg. Listen to how he puts this. He says, it's true that a slab of cement does not have to worry about weeds, but it will also never be a garden. What if God intended you to be a garden? What if God intended you to flourish, to enjoy life, to embrace the good things? Right, but how? <laughs> Blaming the things doesn't work. It turns me into an addict. Blaming the world and becoming hardened doesn't work. I just become a cynic. So how do I do it? How do I enjoy the good things that are there and not go these two extremes? And that's letter C. I want to suggest that there is only one way that actually works, and that is to see things as road signs, which is to say that they were never meant to fulfill you. They were only meant to kind of like awaken like something deeper, like a, like a deeper longing inside you. Because see, when you do this, when I do this, when I see those good things, it's not an end in and of itself, but kind of pointing beyond itself. I become not the addict, not the cynic. I become the worshiper. And see, what if, what if all the good things in life were meant to be like really enjoyed, fully enjoyed, but... They weren't an end in and of themselves. What if they were like that, that, that faint smell of like something, something delicious that you just, you kind of pick up initially and you just, you know, what was that? You know, where'd that come from? Or like this, you know, you catch a tune of a song that you think you know, but you can't quite place what it is. And you just, what, what is that? What is that? And you start thinking about it. Well, what if all the good things that God has given you were meant to arouse a deeper longing for the true home, the true love, the true vocation, the true activity, the ultimate in your life. What if they were pointing to God? See, that's why in verse 7 he says, go 
and joy because these things are, are, are pointers to something greater. They're pointers to God. And if I take this third view of seeing them as road signs, being the worshiper, I will live with gratitude. You know what the difference of gratitude is in our, or the opposite of gratitude in our day? It's not ingratitude. I think it's entitlement. You know the difference between gratitude and entitlement? Let me read for you excerpts from a dog's diary and a cat's diary as a means to show the difference between living with gratitude and living with entitlement, okay? A dog's... You, you, you know where this is going, right? Dog's diary, okay? 8 a.m., dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30 a.m., a car ride, my favorite thing. 10.30 a.m., got rubbed and petted, my favorite thing. 1 p.m., wagged my tail, my favorite thing. 5 p.m., milk bones, my favorite thing. 7 p.m., got to play ball, my favorite thing. 8 p.m., wow, watch TV with the people, my favorite thing. 11 p.m., sleeping on the bed, my favorite thing. Right? Excerpts from a cat's diary. Day 983 of my captivity. <laughs> my captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. <laughs> only if I take the third view of things... Will I be able to live, like, with gratitude, right? Well, my favorite thing, I love that. That's awesome. Will I be able to live with gratitude, enjoy things, like embrace them fully, take them for all their worth and everything they have without either making them an ultimate thing and then, and then letting them crush me because they, they just can't support my, the weight of my heart and my soul or becoming this hardened cynic who can't enjoy life altogether, because, see, a worshiper is thankful to God for those things that he gives, but he also learns to trust God that, you know what, they're temporary. They're going to be taken away someday. They're going to be gone. This is a temporary assignment, having this car, having this thing. This is a temporary assignment. It will one day be gone. And so a worshiper can enjoy a thing without being owned by that thing. So in verse 10, when Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. This is a, re a result of the third way of approaching things. In the next fill in the blank, the Roman numeral three, do you give yourself to life with all of its joys and responsibilities? Do you do it with all your might? Because see, there's a, there's a misconception, I think, within following Jesus, probably a misconception within religion at large, that um, once, once I became a follower of Jesus, I have to kind of like jettison or like discard or, or, or throw away things that I just get excited about, things that like really, really get me going, things I love, my passions. And I must become this kind of mild-mannered person and, and like I see this direct correlation between like my level of holiness and then the level to which I've like flatlined my passions, right? Now, this is a common religious model, and I think it creeps over into following Jesus, but it's not Jesus' model. I mean, the Buddha, for instance, taught this idea that the human problem is that you are attached to things. You like things, and you want things. You desire them. 
And so the, the solution, according to the Buddha, was you just need to scratch out desire. You need to kill it all together, and then you've solved it. You'll never be disappointed. But again, maybe we're meant to be something more than cement. Right? Jesus has a different answer. Jesus says, don't kill desire. I put it there. Right? Redirect it. Because, see, it's not that God finds your desires too strong. He finds them too weak. Right? Our desires are directed toward things that are too small, that simply will not fill your heart. And see, this is his whole point. He says, love first things first, and second things will come. Right? That's a way of paraphrasing. Remember, he said, seek first the kingdom of God. Why? Because what happens then afterwards? All the other things, yeah, they fall into place. They come, right? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, aim at heaven and get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you won't get either one. You'll miss them both. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, means that we can be the most passionate people as we follow Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What is it, what is it that you love to do? I mean, like, like you do and like time, you know, like you lose track of time. I mean, just like, oh man, I can't believe it's been three hours I've been doing. Like, what is it that you'd say, man, I just, I'm, I'm passionate about doing this. And it could be some hobby, some activity, could, you know, whatever it might be. If you were to write something down, what, what would you write down? What is it that you really enjoy doing? And I would suggest that whatever that is, it is something that God has, has likely hardwired inside you to enjoy. He put it there. And it's even likely something that when you do, you could possibly feel God's presence most powerfully when you're doing that. Is it, is it working with your hands? You know, is it, is, it, is it when you're building something, maybe an engine, maybe you've got a car or a motorcycle and you're working on that? Well, is there any wonder? Remember, you were made in the image of a, of a God who engineered this enormous machine in a fabulous way with almost transcendent powers and energies, so much so that people dedicate entire careers to just understand a sliver of it. That would make sense that you love to create and build. Now, if your passion for building cars or working on it, you know, puts you in debt, well, it's time to say no, right? But it is a good thing to design. It is a good thing to build. Is it achieving goals? Are you that entre entrepreneurial type, you know, that you love to kind of achieve and build and the next thing? Do you have a knack for business? There's this, uh, this woman in, in Acts chapter 16. Her name was Lydia. And Lydia, we, we uh, read about, was a businesswoman dealing in textiles. And she had this, this just natural ability to make money. She was good at making money. And she, had, she owned her own home. Now, imagine a woman in the ancient world who was able to achieve this much. I mean, she had an amazing ability to do this. You think of all the churches in Europe, right? You know, the Sistine Chapel, um, you know, Notre Dame, whatever it might be. You know what the very first church was? It was Lydia's home. She was the very first convert in all of Europe. And she opened up her home that she owned because of her textile business for the very first church in all of Europe. It's not a bad thing to make money. It's not a bad thing to enjoy making money. Now, if that becomes too important and it starts choking out generosity, if you're not pouring that back into the lives of other people, investing in our world in beauty, you need to say no. But it is not a bad thing in and of itself. Maybe it's relationships. Are you a good host? 
Like, like, do you love having people over at your house? Do you love opening up your home and just saying, you know, come on in. You need to host more parties. Because when you do, when you open up your life, when you share in the laughing and the, and the, and the tears of other people, that's, that's something that God put inside you to enjoy doing. It's something you're good at for a reason. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's creating physical beauty. You know, do you love creating like, like room spaces or some outside garden? You say, man, I love beautifying this. I love reflecting just God's goodness. I so enjoy that. I think of a friend of mine who is a uh, hairdresser. Her name's Kristen. And, and she, she says people come to her salon and they sit in her salon chair. And she, she will say, they open up to me and, and tell me things about their life that they would not tell anybody else. And there's something about when she is caring for not just their body, but their souls, that she feels most alive. She feels God's presence most powerfully. Here's the point. You could, you could get rid of all the sin in your life. We could get rid of sin in this everywhere, and you will still desire stuff. You will still have desires that are attached to material things and achievement things and creative things because God designed you to do those things. That's why he says, whatever you do, I've approved of it. He says, do it with all your might. Okay? Here's the linchpin. Here's the skeleton key, though, to making sense of this all, to making this work. You can only enjoy things, those things you're good at, things out there. You can only do them if you connect the dots between them and the giver of them. Otherwise, you won't be able to do this. You won't be able to live this way. And this is the last point in our outline here. Are you learning to connect the dots from the gift to the giver? See, only if you're, if you're so filled up with God himself will you be able to enjoy and embrace his gifts. Um, that, that longing that you have, you know, like Madonna, to matter to be significant, it will never be filled by those good things. They're too small. That longing will only be filled by mattering to the giver of those gifts. I want to close with a, with a story um, and, and then pray. Um, Marianne Bird is a woman who, who wrote in her memoir uh, called The Whisper Test of the moment she first mattered. Uh, she, she was born with multiple birth defects. She was, she was deaf in one ear. Uh, she had a cleft palate, uh, lip. She had a disfigured face. Her nose was crooked and uh, lopsided feet. And as a child, Marianne suffered, you know, beyond just, you know, the physical deformity and difficulty, she suffered much more just by the ridicule. You know, kids would make fun of her at school and, um, you know, her classmates would say, you know, what happened to your lip? And she, and she would lie, and, oh, I, I cut it on a piece of glass, she would say. One of her worst experiences at school was the day of the annual hearing test. The teacher would call each child to her desk, and the child would um, first cover up one ear and, and then the other. And, and the teacher would, would whisper something to the child like, the sky is blue, or uh, you have new shoes. And this was the whisper test. And if, if the teacher's phrase was heard and repeated, the child passed the test. Well, to avoid being humiliated uh, every year just you know, from failing it, because she was deaf in one ear, Marianne would cheat on the test, and, and she would cover up her, her good ear, but just kind of enough so that she could still hear what 
what the teacher was saying. Well, one year, Marianne was in the class of uh, Miss Leonard, uh, who was one of the most popular teachers in all of school. Uh, everyone, including Marianne, wanted to matter to Miss Leonard, wanted to be recognized, wanted to be Miss Leonard's pet. Then came the day of the dreaded hearing test. When it uh, was Marianne's turn, she was called to the teacher's desk, and as, as Marianne cupped her hand over her ear, Miss Leonard leaned forward to whisper to her. And Marianne uh, wrote later in her memoir, she said, I waited for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Because you, you see, Miss Leonard did not say to Marianne, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. What she whispered was, I wish you were my little girl. You see, most of our, most of our scars come from the good things that have broken our hearts in some way. And until you realize God is saying to you, I wish you were mine, you will stay the addict, you will stay the cynic, you will, you will stay broken. But when you realize God is saying, I wish you were mine, you will finally be set free to enjoy God's things, but you will not be controlled by them, and you will embrace life, and you will be able to live life out loud. Would you bow your heads with me, and let's pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond, and this isn't to me. This is just in your own way, to yourself, in your heart, in your mind. If, if you would say, maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I think, playing the identity, the role of, of the addict, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to fill this need to matter in my life with stuff. And there's a lot of good things, and I know they're good, but they've probably become too important to me. Or maybe you're sitting there saying, you know, honestly, I, th I think I'm probably the cynic with regard to some areas because, man, you don't understand. I've been really hurt, and I've been really disappointed, and I'm broken, and I don't want to feel that hurt anymore. So I I've hardened myself. God to soften me and to all of us to say I need to become the worshiper I need to have this this third view of God's good things in a way that I can enjoy them fully that I can live with gratitude that I can embrace life and live in a way in which God can reflect his beauty through me Respond in your heart to, to one of those if God is prompting you in some way. Heavenly Father, we, we understand, God, that you are the giver of all that is good and true and beautiful. Father, would you give us ears to hear that you are saying individually to us, I wish you were mine. And God, may we be so captivated by the one behind the gifts, so enthralled by the, the sheer octane of your brilliance and your beauty. God, that we would be able to live in this life under the sun and embrace and enjoy your good gifts, God, be impassioned by them and yet not, and yet not broken by those things. And we thank you, God, that you love us so much that you give us 
all things, and we trust you for that. And we pray that in the strong and the powerful name of your son, Jesus. And we all said together, 